You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome The History of the Great War, episode 114. This week is something of a special episode, as we break from our usual programming to discuss something that happened 100 years ago, the Battle of Vimy Ridge. This show goes out to all of our Canadian listeners, who are a minority, but they're also very vocal, so that's why we're here today. This battle, Vimy Ridge, occurred between April 9th and 12th, 1917. This action would be part of the larger Battle of Arras, which was the British portion of the Nivelle Offensive launched by the French army to the south. We will not be discussing either the Battle of Arras or the Nivelle Offensive today. That will come in later episodes. However, we will be discussing the Battle of Vimy Ridge, mostly because it's very important to Canadians. It would be this battle that would be chosen to commemorate the entire war for Canadians, and because of this, they often discuss the events there outside of the context of the larger battles that were taking place around it. For those who remember our discussion about Gallipoli and what it meant for Australia and New Zealand, both at the time and over the last century, I think the place that Vimy fits in Canadian history is very similar. Today, we will start with a bit of information about Canada before the war before we jump into what they did during the first two years of the conflict. Then we will transition the story to Vimy by discussing how the Canadians got there, what they did to the area once they arrived, and then how they prepared for the attack which they were about to launch. Then the attack will begin, which we will discuss in some detail. We will then close out our episode by discussing how Vimy came to be the most important battle for the Canadians, since it was not the first, the largest, or greatest success by Canadian troops during the war. All of that and more will be covered during this episode, and for those wondering about the Romanian front, we will jump back there next episode to finish off that story. But that is the future. Let's let's focus on the now, which is Vimy. Before the war, Canada was part of the British Commonwealth. It's important at this point to not say colony, a mistake I made in the early episodes of the podcast for which I received many angry emails, so it was a commonwealth, not a colony. Because it was part of the commonwealth, it had a good amount of autonomy in everything except for foreign relations and the military, both of which were handled in London. 
The country was still mostly a frontier country, with a lot of open areas, small villages, and room to roam. There was only one rail line connecting the cities of eastern Canada to the Pacific, although there were others being built. When the war started, Canada had an army of just more than 3,000 regulars and 74,000 part-time militia, and these men did not have any real military tradition. There was little knowledge in the leadership about how to prepare for war, and there was little experience leading men in combat. Growing the number of men available to the military was a hotly debated topic before the war, due to it being a period of strong isolationist movements after the Boer War. During that war, there were Canadian troops sent to South Africa, but when the fighting was over, many Canadians questioned the benefit. Much of the resistance to a stronger military came from the French Canadians, and as had been the case for quite some time, there was friction between French Canadians and British Canadians that would run high several times both before, during, and after the war. This friction would come to a head later in the war, when the topic of conscription in Canada was discussed, but that's not something that we will be covering today. While these discussions about how large of a military Canada should have were still happening when the war started, there was widespread support from the war, especially among British Canadians, many of whom saw themselves as British first and Canadian second. Much like the British Army, when the Canadian Army began to grow rapidly, it was made up almost entirely of citizen volunteers with no military training before the war. These came predominantly from Western Canada, with almost half of the troops at Vimy coming from west of Ontario, an area that at this time had less than a quarter of the total population of the country, which translates into a much higher volunteer ratio. These were young men who had lived most of their lives in the open country, and they were used to hard work, and were not at all used to the type of discipline that the British Army demanded. This was a quality that they shared with their Australian and New Zealand cousins, with soldiers from all three countries thought to be undisciplined and unruly by their British counterparts. Because of this, the British leaders thought very little of them, and boy, would they be wrong. These units were led by the Canadian Minister of Militia, Sam Hughes, who had some good qualities, but also had some downsides. One of these downsides was his desire to use Canadian goods to arm and provision troops, with many of these items found to be inadequate for the war. One example of this was his belief in the Ross Rifle, which was a Canadian rifle known for its accuracy, and because of this accuracy, it would become one of the premier sharpshooting rifles of the war. However, it had some pretty big downsides. The biggest of one was that it dealt very poorly with mud, dirt, and dust, which was everywhere on the battlefield. In a battle situation, not being able to count on your rifle to work is never something that soldiers like. And because of this, the Canadian troops were almost entirely re-outfitted and rearmed when they got to Europe. Also, when they arrived in Britain, they found that the initial plan was to break up their units to use them in as spot reinforcements for British units. The reason that the British wanted to do this was obvious. However, the Canadian leaders fought fiercely against this happening. Because of their persistence, the Canadians were kept together, first in divisions, and then later as part of the Canadian Corps at Vimy, and then part of the Canadian Army in the last months of the war. The 1st Canadian Division would arrive in France in spring 1915, in time to take their place in the line north of Ypres before the German gas attack during the Second Battle of Ypres. During this battle, they would perform well, and Canadian troops would take part in several battles on the Western Front, including the Battle of the Somme. Their cavalry corps would also be active during these years, something that Patreon supporters can hear about in these special cavalry episodes from last year. 
they would also acquit themselves well on the battlefield, almost at all times, which meant that they were assigned to attack Vimy Ridge, and that meant that there were high hopes that it would be successful. Vimy Ridge had been on the front line since the race to the sea in 1914. It was a ridge about 4.5 miles long that rose about 480 feet high. It was the last natural defensive line between, before the Dwa Plain, which was, had many important German rail lines crisscrossing it. Since October 1914, it had been the witness of several French attempts to retake it from the Germans, especially during the first and second battles of Artois in May and September 1915, when it took center stage in the French attacks. It had proven to be a tough nut to crack, though, and since those attacks, it had only gotten more difficult. The Germans had spent over two years improving their fortifications on the ridge, and in spring 1917, they had introduced a new method of defense, a defense in depth, which was designed specifically around the situation on the Western Front. However, on this section of the front, the German commander would not properly utilize these new techniques, and would instead default back to the old style of having a strongly held front line. These troops would be vulnerable to the Canadian artillery, which would play such a critical role in the eventual success of the attack. Preparations for the Vimy attack would have its roots when the Canadian Corps were moved into the area in October 1916. When they arrived, the Canadians found that the area stank of death, and everywhere there was evidence of the previous battles. Rusty wire, shell holes, and worst of all, dead and decaying bodies could be found just below the surface. The commander was General Bing, who was notified in November that his troops would be assaulting the ridge early in 1917. Bing would be the right man for this job, even though he was not Canadian. He would be generally thought very highly of, both by the troops and their Canadian officers, both during this attack and later in the war. The soldiers had all winter to give thought to their coming task and to prepare for it. They would be responsible for capturing all four miles of the ridge, and to do this they would have four divisions, all of which were bigger than the typical British division, with 21,000 instead of 15,000 men. The person in charge of getting all of these troops prepared was General Arthur Curry, who was put in charge of first analyzing the battles up to that point in the war, with particular focus on the Somme and Verdun, to try and put together some lessons that could be applied to the Canadian effort. Curry was a perfect fit for this job. With a strong tactical mind, as well as being a good administrator and planner, he was going to do great. He would eventually find himself in command of all Canadian forces later in the war. For the men in the trenches, winter was miserable, just like it was for everybody in the trenches. It would be below freezing for over a month straight, and the ground would freeze to a depth of two feet. When it was not freezing, the ground would just turn into the typical sea of mud that would be present on so many battlefields on the Western Front. As always, the artillery would be critical. It was under the command of Major Alan Francis Brooke, who would go on to be the chief of the British Imperial General Staff during Second World War, as Field Marshal Lord Allenbrook. So, he had some skill, probably, hopefully. For two weeks, the artillery would fire on the German positions, with the fire rate doubling in the second week. All of these shells, which escalated up to 3,000 per minute during the last few days, would destroy 93% of the German artillery, and cause serious issues for the frontline German soldiers, as they tried to move food, water, and reinforcements into the front lines. 
The German troops would come to call the second week of the bombardment the week of suffering due to the constant barrage. However, it would be the bombardment on the day of the attack that I find to be most impressive. I have posted a bombardment map from the Vimy attack in the show notes for this episode, and I think it looks pretty impressive. Every three minutes, the bombardment would move forward 90 meters, with breaks at each major objective to let the infantry catch up. This was not the first time that creeping barrages were used, and the British and French had been trying to get it right for almost two years now. However, at Vimy would be one of the first times that they nailed it perfectly. They were helped by the errors in the disposition of the German defenders, which we've already briefly touched on. The German commander von Falkenhausen kept most of his men in the front lines and well within the range of the Canadian guns, making them vulnerable to first the preparatory bombardment and then the creeping barrage. The guns would fire for two weeks before the attack and then go silent at dusk the night before. They would reignite their fire the next morning. One bit of preparations that the Canadians spent a lot of time on was digging, and not just trenches but tunnels as well, some of which were quite large. There were a number of huge tunnels dug in front of Vimy Ridge, and by March one author would compare the area to Swiss cheese. There were a dozen large subways linking the front lines to the rear, and in total there would be 6 kilometers worth of tunnels. The subways were large, with some over 6 feet high and 3 feet wide, more than enough for a couple of men to walk shoulder and shoulder through. These were supported by timbers every meter, were subject to detailed mapping efforts to aid in movement, and were at their shallowest 20 feet below ground, with several being far deeper. And then also they had countless galleries reaching out on either side. These galleries were up to 150 square feet, and were used to hold things like battalion and brigade headquarters, dressing stations, munition dumps, everything that was needed to keep an army really going. They were also used as transportation tunnels, linking the Canadian rear areas to tunnels that led right up to the front lines and sometimes out into no man's land. They also provided a safe way to reach the tunnels that were used as listening posts and had large explosive mines at the end to be detonated before the attack. Some of the subways and tunnels also had electricity, and there were also critical highways for electrical, telephone, and water lines that went from the rear to the front lines. There would be 21 miles of electrical cable buried both in these tunnels and in the trenches, 22 water pumping stations running 54 miles of pipe, and in total something like 1,100 miles of telephone cable, all of which had to be laid down before the attack. In the days and hours before the attack began, the tunnels would take on their primary purpose, which was to house the second wave of Canadian troops, which would mass inside the larger tunnels waiting to move forward. Having a protected highway in which these units could assemble and then be unleashed right into no man's land protected them from the possibility of being hit by German artillery. It also meant communications and coordinations between the attacking units and the officers in the rear would be much easier, since it would allow safe places to base telephone lines in. Overall, the ability to move men and materiel into the front lines without issues would play a huge role in the success of the attack. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? 
That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Another important piece of the Canadian preparation puzzle were raids. Over the course of the four months before the attack, there would be at least 55 raids launched by the Canadians. These raids had a huge variance in size, with some being just a handful of men and some being up to 1,700. For the three weeks before April 9th, these raids would be launched nightly. These raids served several purposes. The first was to try and capture German soldiers, who could be interrogated to gain intelligence. It also kept the Germans off balance. They knew that their section of the front could be hit any night which kept men from resting properly, with the knowledge that they could be woken up by Canadians in their trenches at any moment. On the opposite side of that feeling, it also made the Germans used to seeing Canadians between the lines. This meant that on the night of the attack, if there were a few Canadians seen between the trenches, the Germans might just assume that it was another raid, and not the major attack that it would actually be. While these raids were by and large successful, and certainly got a lot more inexperienced Canadians more experienced and they were more ready for the attack, they were also costly, with about 1,700 men and officers killed or wounded. This would hit some units harder than others, which would reduce their fighting strength in the days and weeks before the attack. However, both Curry and Bing believed that the benefits of the raids were more than worth the cost. These were just some of the preparations for the attack, preparations that went on for months. After Curry had analyzed the previous battles, he put in place a training and preparation system that would include all of the following activities. First, there were maps created of the terrain to be assaulted. These were then used to make large terrain models of the sector. Then there were full-scale models created behind the lines with colored tapes used to mark trenches, obstacles, or other items of note. 
These were then used to drill the troops over and over again, so much so that many men complained that they were completely and utterly bored with the idea by the time the attack was launched. There were also very detailed maps of every German stronghold, redoubt, and barbed wire line created and mass-produced. Something like 40,000 of these maps were printed in total, and they were sent to officers within the Canadian Corps, all the way down to section leaders. This level of distribution was unheard of at the time, men that close to the front, at that low of a level, given detailed maps. However, Curry wanted to do this to make it easier for these section and platoon leaders to know how they fit in with the plan and how they needed to carry out their piece of it. It helped to coordinate units during the attack, and it also greatly increased morale. Every man, all the way down to the newest private, was being given specific information about their role in the attack. This showed the men that they were trusted by their leaders, and that those officers thought that they were smart enough to be told all the information and that they could be trusted to use it. This was a big deal at the time, even if it sounds a bit silly these days. Another piece of preparation was finding the German artillery so that counter-battery fire could be dropped in on them. To do this, the Canadians used several techniques, one of which was sound ranging. This was done by having a series of microphones placed all along the front lines, which were hooked up via wires to recorders back at headquarters. When the German guns would fire, the intervals between when the sound hit each microphone was analyzed, and through a bit of geometry, the position of the German guns could be determined. It took time to get it all right, but by April, if it was a clear day, the Canadians could determine the position of a German gun to within a 25-yard circle in about three minutes. They also used flash spotting, which involved men along the front with surveying gear and a reporting system that lit up lights back at headquarters when they spotted flashes. Both of these could be combined to get the position of an enemy gun pretty close, close enough for counter-battery fire, and far better than any previous method. Another feature of the Vimy battle, and one that was also used during the raids beforehand, was indirect machine gun fire. This was a concept put forward by a Canadian, Raymond Brutonel, with the idea being that you could do with machine guns something similar to what the artillery was doing. The machine guns could be pointed up in the air so that the bullets had a higher trajectory and would fall down on the enemy. They would hit with just as much force as if they had been directly fired, but they could be fired over obstacles or over the heads of attackers. This steel rain was extremely dangerous for the Germans, and was an easy way to increase the danger to exposed soldiers in the moments before the attack hit the German lines. Speaking of the attack, let's talk about the final run-up to April 9th. For a week before the attack, every Canadian knew every detail of what they needed to know for the attack, except for when it would happen. Along the front, final preparations were happening. Light railways were pushed as far forward as possible. Bridges were either put across the rear Canadian trenches or put nearby in preparation. Huge munition and supply dumps were built up right behind the lines, ready to move forward into the new positions. Starting on April 7th, men began to move forward. It started with headquarters units, then as night fell, thousands of men pushed forward to their jumping-off trenches. They moved through communication trenches, or the lucky ones went through the subways. Then later, more troops would move into the secondary lines, and then still more into the reserve lines. Eventually, there would be 23 battalions in the front line, 12 right behind them, and 9 more in reserve behind them. 
Unfortunately, the knife's weather of April 7th gave way to unfortunate winter weather as the clock ticked down. This resulted in Canadians being stuck in their trenches, standing around, often in freezing water and mud, waiting with snow joining in the party later on. As the hour approached, the snows increased, reaching blizzard intensity occasionally, an intensity matched only by the artillery fire. Over the course of the last week, the artillery fired a million rounds, until the night before, they went silent. Then three minutes before the attack, they fired off gas rounds into the German rear areas to disrupt artillery and reinforcements. Then two minutes before, the infantry made their finer preparations and bayonets were fixed. Then with one minute left, a single artillery gun, the signal to the rest fired, and suddenly the world was ripped asunder as thousands of guns fired almost simultaneously. It had started. Each of the four divisions that would take part in the attack had slightly different plans, based on the fact that the distance between the Canadian lines and their final objectives varied along the front. As a general rule, the final objectives were closer on the left, and on the right they were further away. It was in the south that the 1st Division would attack, with its objectives 4,000 yards away, which was the furthest of any of the four divisions. The plan was to launch the attack in two stages, with each having two lines of objectives within them. Each of these four locations would be designated as a line and a color, and they functioned as a way to tell the units that it was time for the attacking troops to stop and consolidate, while the next wave of men prepared to carry the offensive forward. The first objective would be called the Black Line, which ran along the initial German front trenches. When the 1st Division attacked, some of their units lose half of their men attacking this first objective. However, they would still capture it quickly. In general, given the Canadian attacking plans, it was better for something to be captured quickly rather than cheaply. While this was a good accomplishment, capturing the first line of German trenches was not unheard of at this point in the war. The British and French had done it several times. Now it was time to continue forward, though, and that was always the problem. When the black line was captured, the men signaled, using flags, to aircraft overhead, and that they had reached their first objective. They also stopped to fortify their positions, while the artillery moved forward 200 yards to provide them with a curtain of steel to prevent any German counterattacks. While this happened, the second wave of Canadians moved through the first wave, and at precisely 6.55 a.m., the advance resumed. The next objective, the Red Line, was half a mile from the Black Line, a fair distance, but already the German defenders were beginning to lose cohesion. Reinforcements had not yet arrived at the front, and the rear area trenches were only lightly held. Because of this lack of strength, the Canadians reached the Red Line in just 28 minutes. This meant that they were a mile beyond where they had started, and it was still only 7.13 a.m., Up to this point, all of the attacking had been done by the 2nd and 3rd Brigades of the 1st Division. However, since the 1st Division front narrowed as it went forward, only one brigade would move through these troops to continue the attack. This would be the 1st Brigade, and it was their job to take the final two lines of objectives. It would be two and a half hours, though, before they could attack, and during that time, the 2nd and 3rd Brigades dug in, consolidated their positions, and took care of the last few German holdouts, and finally they prepared the way for others to continue forward. During all this time, the artillery fire continued. At 10 a.m., the artillery and the infantry began once again to move forward. They quickly advanced the 600 yards to the blue line, waited at that point for an hour, and then moved on to their final objective. 
By the time they reached it, it was 1.30 p.m. Overall, the first division's attack was a textbook success. The first waves had been hit hard by the German defenders, but successive waves had been more successful and had suffered fewer casualties. They had captured everything that they had been sent to capture in a single day, and they would be able to hold on against any further German attacks. Unfortunately, this would be the best experience of any of the four divisions on the 9th, even though they had moved the furthest. The second division, to the left of the first, had a shorter distance to go by about half a mile. However, the second division had its own challenges. The biggest of these was the fact that instead of the width of the front narrowing as they went forward, it instead got wider. This made it more difficult to keep moving as they got deeper and deeper into the German positions. This also meant that instead of shifting from two brigades to one brigade at the halfway point, they would instead be using two brigades for the second half of the attack. Since the 2nd Division only had three brigades, the 4th Brigade was provided by the British 5th Division in the form of the 13th Brigade. By 6.25am, the troops had already reached the first line of objectives and suffered very few casualties. For the most part, the German units opposite them had not been able to put forward any real resistance, with many of their units being obliterated by the artillery and machine gun fire. In one of the German battalions, only a single man would survive the morning. For the next attack, the Germans were slightly more prepared, but not by too much. Because of this, the next objectives were captured in less than half an hour. At 9.30, the Canadian 6th and British 13th Brigades took over the attack and moved forward. During this jump, there were some severe casualties, not all of which were caused by the Germans. Instead, there were several Canadian artillery batteries who dropped shells short during this attack, killing or wounding a number of Canadian infantry. This setback did not prevent the troops from achieving their goal and reaching the blue line by 11.30 and the brown line, their final objective, by 12.45. On paper, the 3rd Division had the easiest job of all of the Canadian divisions on the April 9th. They only had to advance 1,200 yards, much less than the divisions on their right, and they did not have any truly daunting positions to capture like the 4th Division did on their left. Because of these advantages, the 3rd Division's attack would go off almost without a hitch. In fact, the only problem was on their left flank, and was not on their front at all, but on the front of the 4th Division. The issue was Hill 145, which we will discuss here shortly. However, for the 3rd Division, it caused their far-left units to come under a crippling machine gun fire, and they could not really do anything about it. This would cause them hundreds of casualties, and some units, like the Canadian Black Watch, would be hit very hard by this fire. This brings us to the 4th Division the last of the Canadian divisions to take part in the Vimy attack. This division would be the one that failed to the only one that failed to capture all of its objectives either ahead or on schedule. All the problems result, revolved around Hill 145. In the planning for the attack, the Canadians had grossly underestimated the strength of the German positions on the hill, and it would end up being the toughest and best defended sector on the entire ridge. It also had some extremely steep slopes, which were difficult to grapple with. The final issue with this hill was that the Germans had concealed several concrete machine gun positions that purposefully did not fire until the Canadian attack had begun, which meant they had not been targeted by previous artillery fire. One bit of an issue that the Canadians actually caused themselves was about how they were bombarding before the attack. They decided not to bombard a bit of trench right in front of the hill and right in front of the Grenadier Guards. 
The theory behind this choice was that if they destroyed the trench before the attack, then troops would be vulnerable to German fire from further up the hill while they were attacking. So instead of destroying the trench, they would leave it intact so that the Canadians would have the ability to shelter inside of it while preparing to launch their next wave forward. Instead of having this benefit, though, it resulted in half of the Grenadier Guards being killed or wounded in just six minutes. This completely stopped their attack, and it slowed the attack of the entire division, since the guards were positioned pretty close to the middle of the front. Their failure caused issues for all of the surrounding units as they tried to push forward. All morning, units around the hill would try and deal with the Germans firing on them from above, but attack after attack failed. It would not be until the afternoon when the Nova Scotia Highlanders, who were not even supposed to be participating in the fighting, since 200 of them were back in England with the mumps, arrived and went forward and finally pushed the Germans off the hill. It had taken all day, it had cost hundreds of casualties, but finally, Hill 145 was captured. The final piece of the Vemi puzzle was the capture of the Pimple, the highest point on the ridge. The original plan was to attack this position on the 10th. However, units that were initially supposed to launch this attack had been badly mauled on the 9th due to the fighting around Hill 145, which meant that the operation had to be postponed until April 12th. Once the attack was launched, it met with the same level of success as previous attacks, and after the capture of this final position, the battle was basically over. Overall, the Canadian casualties numbered about 10,000, 3,500 of which were killed. Capturing the ridge had been a great achievement, though, and they had captured 4,000 Germans, 54 artillery guns, and 124 machine guns to go along with the territory. However, it probably could have been so much more. Especially on the southern end of the front, the Canadians had accomplished their goals so easily and so quickly that they probably could have advanced much further. This may have exposed them to harsher German counterattacks because they would have been outside the range of Canadian artillery, but the troops could not advance beyond their final objectives anyway without authorization, even though many of their accounts say it would have been very easy. Overall, the Battle of Vimy Ridge was a success. A costly success, perhaps, but a success nonetheless. Given the recent British track record of attacks um, that had been costly failures, I'm pretty sure they would take any success, almost no matter how costly it was. With the battle over, the only question left to answer is how did Vimy find its way into Canadian society in such a big way? So after the war, France and Belgium worked with its allies to find sites throughout the two countries to try and find places where all could properly be memorialized. These areas were then given to the countries in perpetuity. Canada selected and was provided with eight different sites. And after the war, there were some heated discussions about how these sites should be memorialized. Some believed that all eight sites should be treated equally. Some believed that one should be chosen as the national memorial site with a larger and more encompassing memorial, while the others were dedicated with smaller, more local memorials. Initially, the Canadians would plan to construct the same memorial at all eight sites, and they asked for submissions on what these should look like. Everybody liked the idea put forward by Walter Allward. However, it was too large and ambitious to be put on eight different sites, so if they wanted to build it, only one site could be chosen. So with that in mind, why Vimy? Well, this is a multifaceted answer. First of all, the battle was a successful attack, and this was not a requirement, but it does add a kind of feel-good narrative to the events. Second, Vimy was the first time that all of the Canadian troops on the Western Front would launch an attack together, with a single purpose and at a single location. 
This type of unity of purpose for all Canadian troops would play a big role in the narrative of the battle. Third, the battle was, for the most part, planned, executed, and led by men who were Canadians, making it an almost entirely Canadian victory, not a British victory that the Canadians participated in. The final reason, and I'm not sure if this is a bit of a joke, but I quite like it, is that it was also chosen because the location is easy to pronounce. As a man who is no stranger to mispronouncing French and Belgian place names, having your memorial at a place like Vimy made it far easier for Canadians to pronounce and interact with. Again, I don't know if that's completely accurate, but it made me chuckle. So what was this monument that was created? Well, it would be 230 feet wide, 200 feet deep, and 120 feet high. And I think it's probably one of the most recognizable memorials on the Western Front, probably due to its simplicity. Its usage of two huge pillars constructed of Croatian limestone with figures carved on all sides make for a lovely and powerful image. It would take 12 years to complete the structure, not being done until 1936, and it bears the names of 11,285 Canadians who died in France and whose bodies were never recovered. I think that the best way to close out the episode is a quote from Pierre Burton from his book Vimy. It's near the end of the book as Burton tries to explain how Vimy took the place that it did in Canadian culture. The answer ends up being somewhat simple. Vimy became so important because the people wanted it to be. Canadians wanted and needed a focal point for their commemorations, their memories, and their grief, and that could have been placed anywhere. Quote, what counts is that in the minds of Canadians, Vimy took on a mythic quality in the post-war years, and Canada was short of myths. There was something a little desperate, a little wistful, in the commentaries of the 20s and 30s and even later, in which Canadians assured one another over and over again that at Vimy, Canada had last found its maturity. <laughs>